Good evening. Uh, my name is John Seidel, and on behalf of the, the Middle Eastern Studies Center, hello. On behalf of the Middle East Center here at the LSE, I'd like to welcome our guest speaker for the evening, Professor Yezid Saig from the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Uh, many of you will, of course, be familiar with his work, most notably his book on uh, the history of the armed struggle in the Palestinian national movement and his other many writings on uh, uh, Palestinian nationalism and on the Middle East more broadly. He's just come back after a year uh, of research leave, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the United States at Harvard and Brown Universities working on a book on the role of the military in the Middle East and uh, various other questions. But he's here to speak to us this evening on the question of the peace process and the way forward uh, for the Palestinians uh, in the years ahead. So without further ado, let me leave you with Professor Sai. Thanks, John. And does this work if I don't bend over? Yeah, good, because I don't feel like bending over. Um, thanks for the introduction. Um, and I must say I'm uh, very appreciative that you're all here, given the competition tonight. I'm uh, Ammar, the colonel, apparently speaking right now. So, um, well, I'm touched. What can I say? Um, <laughs> And I'll, I'll be speaking more specifically, I'll modify the uh, title a little bit on Palestinian politics and implications for the peace process. So I'll say rather less about the peace process, it's, it's not really very much of it, and say rather more on the Palestinian politics. And I'm going to skip through somewhat, um, so I very much hope you'll take me up on any of the issues that I skim over um, in order to go in greater depth in discussion uh, later on. Um, so what I'm going to do is focus on what I see as the main dynamic factors that will affect what happens, in my view, in my uh, prediction, in the second half of 2011. Um, and I'll start to explain in a while just why I'm focusing on the latter part of 2011. Um, but my main focus is on Palestinian politics. I'm going to be discussing the Fayyad government, the government of Prime Minister Salam Fayyad in the West Bank, who heads the Palestinian Authority government there. Um, I'm going to be discussing the politics of Fatah, which is the mainstream national movement that led the PLO for four decades until it was ousted from power in the general elections uh, of 2006 by the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas. I'll then turn a little bit to the United States as a player, even within Palestinian politics, um, before then moving on to look at Gaza under Hamas uh, to complete that picture. And then I'm going to draw the conclusions from the survey for what I think will happen or not happen, as the case may be in relation to the peace process uh, starting later next year. Now, turning to the government of Prime Minister Salam Fayyad first, and more specifically to Salam Fayyad, the Prime Minister. Um, Fayyad is a political independent, as you may already know. He used to be an IMF official, uh, and in the 1990s was delegated to work with the Palestinian Authority, representing the IMF, and eventually in 2004 became the Minister of Finance in the Palestinian Authority because it was perceived that this would be a more effective way of getting the Palestinian Authority to um, implement a number of critical 
reforms in public financial management, at which he was very effective. He's, I believe, a good man, Democrat, um, a technocrat, certainly by training. But one of the points I actually may want to make about him is that since becoming prime minister in the wake of the Hamas takeover of Gaza in June 2007, he was appointed prime minister at the head of a caretaker emergency government in the West Bank. He has demonstrated himself to be, I think, very astute politically. Um, he comes across as a mild-mannered technocrat, an IMF-type person, um, but I think that he's shown um, very careful, very subtle understanding of the political requirements of operating between, on the one hand, the reality of Israeli occupation, and a very intrusive occupation it is in many, many respects, all the key respects. And on the other hand, his not actually possessing his own political power base. So his position as prime minister appears at times to rest on the support and funding of the international community, in particular the United States and the EU. Um, and he's faced a lot of pressure and at times even hostility from Fatah, which continues to nurture the ambition to regain its position of domination within the Palestinian Authority, within the government, in other words, uh, for reasons I'll come back to in a little while. And so Fayyad has had to operate in between these various contending factors to somehow achieve basic security, law and order in areas, autonomous areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, to somehow trigger economic growth after years of very serious recession, high levels of unemployment, food dependency, etc., in the West Bank and not just in Gaza, um, and somehow to persuade the Israelis to ease the restrictions they've imposed on economic activity, on the deployment of Palestinian security forces in the main cities and in villages in the countryside, and broadly speaking to create an environment within which Palestinian institutions can actually be constructed, developed, deepened, all leading ultimately towards statehood. Now, playing that balance is a truly daunting task. And I think that Fayyad has done pretty much as well as could, anyone could have under those circumstances. And I think he, bottom line, needs to be measured by what is possible under those circumstances and not more, which isn't all there is to be said on this matter, however. So, as I'm, as I'm saying first, I think he has astutely, deftly managed so far on the one hand, he reduced the public payroll by about 30,000 people in the first year of taking office. This was an important issue partly because of reducing the financial burden on the PA, which meant also in turn ultimately reducing the financial dependence on assistance from the international community. It also weakened the opposition to him from Fatah itself, which had staffed or rather had put many thousands of its members, their supporters, their family, their aunts and uncles on the public payroll as a means of public patronage, of using public resources for patronage and for securing themselves. And so at a stroke, 
he utilized the sense of defeat, of shock in the wake of the loss of Gaza to Hamas in June 2007 to capitalize quickly and bring about a number of quite serious and major changes within public administration in the West Bank. These are not insignificant things. However, the fact remains that most real power remains in the hands of the president of the PA, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, the leader of Fatah currently after the death of Yasser Arafat in 2004. So power resides with Abbas and in various ways with Fatah. I need to qualify this in a number of ways. First of all, Abbas himself is, um, well, more than a lame duck president. His term as president ended by his own admission last January by Hamas's reckoning, and this is supported by a number of constitutional experts as well, uh, in January 2009. So by anyone's account, including his own, he doesn't actually have constitutional legitimacy today. He nonetheless receives recognition as president from the international community, and of course that counts for probably rather a lot more than constitutional legitimacy. My point, however, is to say that there is a constitutional vacuum in Palestine today um, compounded by the fact that Fayyad himself, his, uh, his government, uh, certainly the one set up in June 2007, lacked constitutional provision as well. There was and is no provision within the Palestinian basic law, which stands for the constitution of the West Bank Gaza, uh, for the creation of something called an emergency government. Uh, there, there just is no such thing. So we have compounded legitimacy deficit here. Fatah itself has more power than Abbas because it is, after all, a mass movement. Uh, at last count, it claims something like 300,000 members. Uh, I find that uh, a figure that's hard to believe. It's true in the sense that everyone's on, on the lists. That doesn't make it a meaningful, effective, cohesive, capable movement in any sense of the word. Nonetheless, it has a number of ministers in government. It still has the legitimacy of having launched the armed struggle against Israel many years ago, of having led the Palestinians to recognition on the international stage. It still remains an important vehicle for elite circulation and patronage. It has a strong presence, and according to opinion polls, it would still, in any election, garner something like 44 or so percent of the general vote. It's a shambles as an organization. It is unable to strategize, one reason why it lost the elections to Hamas in 2006, and why since then it has been unable to mend itself and improve its fortunes. Nonetheless, it remains a powerful force politically, certainly vis-a-vis -vis the Prime Minister Fayyad. And given that many people in Fatah wish to return to office, and to control the key assets and resources of the Palestinian Authority, they aren't inclined to support Fayyad in his own projects and programs. So what Fayyad did in August 2009, at a time when Fatah was approaching its first general conference for 20 years and attempting to revive itself, was to launch his two-year state-building program, or more specifically, a program to build the institutions of state. This is something he launched in August, um, the idea being that since the international community, in particular the U.S. administration under George W. Bush, starting in 2002, had made institution building and reform of the Palestinian Authority 
the centerpiece of expectations vis-a-vis the Palestinians, and that if the Palestinians were to get statehood, this was contingent on their performance and on their good behavior in relation to security, ensuring Israel's security, preventing terrorism, and specifically the, 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 the focus of the international efforts since 2002 has been all about institution building. The idea that if the Palestinians can build capacity within institutions reflected in their ability to deliver security, this will also reflect in economic growth, in governance, in transparency, in accountability, all these good things. So Fayyad has picked up on this and said, well, we are going to build the institutions, we're going to build capacity in order to be able to build bottom-up the institutions of state so that at the given moment politically opportune, the state will be a de facto reality and all it requires then is recognition as such by the international community. So this is one big reason, the main reason I, I, I would argue, <coughs> that I've suggested late 2011, i.e. post-August, as an important turning point because that is when the two years finish. In August 2011, Fayyad will have to deliver something. He's promised everyone a state. He's promised at least to build the institutions of state. He's given himself two years to do so. He's told the international community that he will deliver. And in an op-ed that I've just printed out um, that he posted just yesterday on the Middle East channel of foreignpolicy.com, um, he refers to this. I'll read from this later, why I'm building Palestine. So this is his centerpiece. This is his political platform. This is how he wishes to position himself between Israel on the one side, the international community on the other, and his own people. While fending off and navigating around people like Fatah or Abbas, this is the big political project. So I'm going to leave Fayyad there for a moment and start shifting to the other actors, Fatah and Abbas. There's a, a, a moment, an episode, a year ago or so, which connects the three in a very interesting and, and worrying way. And this was the publication or the imminent uh, decision on what to do about the so-called Goldstone Report. The commission of inquiry headed by Justice Richard Goldstone of South Africa, uh, the UN Commission of Inquiry into the Gaza War, the Israeli operation cast lead, in which about 1,400 people in Gaza died, about half of whom were military people, police, etc., and half were civilians. You, you all know this. Um, when the report was issued in autumn 2009, it should normally have gone uh, for further action to the Security Council, if I recall. I'm getting my history here slightly mixed up. I'm sure you can remind me. Um, what happened, however, was that the Palestinian Authority, uh, and specifically Abbas, uh, decided to defer consideration of the report. Now, this is a very interesting moment because Fatah had just had its conference, its major conference in August, and had committed itself to a political program. Fayyad had launched his own political program and then, with the huge 
uproar over the deferring, the postponement of UN consideration of the Goldstone report at Palestinian request, Abbas's own future came into question. And a number of his entourage, people like negotiator Sa'ib Arikat and some of his advisors, panicked. The possibility that Abbas would follow through on the threat he made at that point to resign as president meant that they would lose what remaining sort of constitutional legitimacy they had, and people like this were worried about what the future would hold for them. Now, here you have the three main pillars of the Palestinian scene in the West Bank, Fatah, Fayyad and his two-year state-building plan, and Mahmoud Abbas, and the whole issue of whether to resign or not, prompting people around him to talk about taking the whole issue to the United Nations of statehood, declaring independence unilaterally. Suddenly, there was a flurry of apparent political and diplomatic initiatives. The three sets of initiatives had not been coordinated together. I mean, it's quite astounding that these three key pillars or actors on the Palestinian side had clearly not been coordinating what their strategy was. This tells you something, I think, about the depth of the malaise of the crisis of Palestinian politics today. So let me say a little bit more about Fatah. I've described it as being a shambles. <clears throat> it wasn't able to stand up to Fayyad in the first year as he slashed the payroll and got rid of thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of Fatah supporters and members on the payroll. But Fatah has proven able to impede Fayyad without necessarily helping him or assisting him to achieve his targets. So it's been able to play something of a spoiler role, slowing down government in effect, um, constantly challenging the government, demanding more ministers in government. It's striking, for instance, that in one of its earliest meetings, the highest, what I guess is, and certainly regards itself as the highest constitutional authority in Fatah, the Revolutionary Council, which was elected at the conference in August 2009, in a three-day meeting in January of this year, it came out with a list of priority goals. And you'd think maybe one priority was lift the siege on Gaza, or reconciliation between Gaza and the West Bank, or a strategy for dealing with the Israeli occupation. Well, clearly, the most important matters on their mind were that the current government lineup was unfair to Fatah and its legacy, and that they took particular exception to the fact that Fatah held neither the Ministry of Finance nor the Ministry of Information. Why? Well, clearly, finance is about control over the financial resources, and therefore ultimately of patronage. And information, in their view, is about visibility, about who gets to tell the story, the narrative, who presents the image. And they found it very upsetting, particularly galling, that the ministry, Minister of Information is not a Fatah member, is in fact someone from what used to be the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Yasser Abdurabbu, who then, to rub salt into the wounds, <laughs> proceeded to downsize the Palestine Broadcasting Commission, <clears throat> um, TV and radio. He's been outsourcing pro programs and production to you know, the private sector. 
because most of the people there are Fatah hirelings who don't do a particularly good job. So there are all sorts of other issues here, but my point is simply to illustrate the fact that Fatah, this historic movement, which claims such a massive membership, um, finds the big issues of the day to challenge, to worry about being whether they have these ministries or not. And there has been repeated pressure ever since then, cyclically, every three months or so, every meeting of the Revolutionary Council, call in Abbas and demand that he reshuffle the cabinet and force Fayyad to change his appointments, his ministerial appointments, and give up the key ones. So far, uh, Fayyad has refused to do so, and so far, Abbas, broadly speaking, has continued to back the prime minister. But it gives you a sense that Fatah is not really capable of strategizing. It has no strategy. When, over the past year or two, a number of different actors, from the international solidarity movement to local NGOs, to some local members of Fatah or even Hamas in the West Bank, have launched a non-violent movement of protesting against the security barrier that Israel has been building on Palestinian lands, cutting off farmers from their lands, from their water sources, from schools and villages and so on. Um, much of this movement has been grassroots based and community based. Fayyad has tried to plug into this and appear to support it. Um, Fatih was a laggard in this. They didn't initiate this. They started to jump on the bandwagon after a while in some local villages and local activists would take part. But broadly speaking, for a movement that claims 300,000 members or 100,000 or 50,000 members, they're next to not invisible. Where is the impact? Where is the mass movement? Where is the mobilization? So this clearly is a, is a movement that has failed to wean itself <coughs> from a history of controlling the political structure and everything that comes with it to learning to become a movement either in parliamentary opposition, which is what they faced under Hamas, or a movement that recalls its grassroots and its, its, its origins of struggle, and that can rebuild a type of resistance movement within the West Bank that is effective in resisting Israeli occupation while working within the parameters of a peace process and nonviolent resistance. Among all these various options, Fatah has come up with none. Fayyad has offered institution building, which is pretty much a, a top-down type thing, a technocratic type thing, and it, uh, you know, it fits into what the international community wants. Um, others, local activists and international activists, have done something quite different. Where is Fatah? <coughs> what Fatah is now doing seems to be instead that key figures within Fatah, in particular in the Central Committee, are jockeying for position in anticipation that Abbas will sooner or later ultimately leave the presidency. What so panicked and scared the key figures in, in Fatah a year and a half ago now has, is seen increasingly as something that offers an opportunity for more ambitious, younger uh, leaders in Fatah. So the sooner Abbas goes, in a way, the sooner these people can promote themselves as the next president, or maybe the next prime minister, as the case may be. And what is particularly worrying about this uh, specific development is that several of the key figures here are active, or rather in several cases, former commanders of the Palestinian Authority's security agencies. These are people who, under Arafat, were made heads of things like the preventive security apparatus and general intelligence. These are now members of the Fatah Central Committee 
they are people who have the ambition and the connections because it is they who over years developed the relationship with the CIA, for instance, with other international intelligence agencies. It is they who did or handled coordination with their Israeli counterparts. And they remain people who are plugged into these worlds. So they see an opportunity to bring together their legitimate leadership within Fatah that they gained through elections in the conference of August 2009, along with access to intelligence services and the security agencies around them, the Israeli control system. They fit in the middle of all these things. And one consequence we see, and I'll be touching on this at the end, is the emergence increasingly of a nexus, if you like, focused on security. Security for Israel, which is delivered by the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, and the General Security Service of Israel in the West Bank, in some areas that are under Israeli control, Area C as it's known, alongside Palestinian intelligence services that operate within autonomous areas, mainly the cities, Area A as it's known, and together, in effect, they're producing um, a politics in the West Bank that is increasingly police-driven, increasingly driven by security and by the security agencies, to the extent that human rights organizations, including the official ombudsman agency of the, PP, of the Palestinian Authority itself, the Independent Commission for Human Rights, has several times over the past year warned of the emergence of a police state in the West Bank. So these have to be seen as very worrying trends. Now, I've mentioned the U.S. a couple of times, and I want to bring it in here. A lot of what I'm describing, these very sort of internal Palestinian political developments, have a lot to do with U.S. policy, with real U.S. policy, let's say. Uh, and by this, I don't mean uh, the State Department, but I mean what the Palestinians, interestingly, in the West Bank, and I mean Palestinian ministers, security commanders, when they talk about the Americans that they meet and work with, they don't mean the official State Department-led um, mission of General Dayton until last summer. You all have heard of Dayton. He's now been replaced. Um, the, the United States security coordinator who provides training for Palestinian security forces. This is not where real U.S. policy is delivered. And when the Palestinians refer to the Americans, they don't mean the general who sits next door, Dayton, or his successor, Mueller. They mean the CIA National Security Council, because these, they know, are the people who really determine what U.S. policy is in Palestine, and not official statements from the White House or from Foggy Bottom, from the State Department. Now, The real focus here, then, in the West Bank for the US, for the CIA, to some extent for our own British intelligence, is confronting Hamas, pursuing the Hamas infrastructure, the military infrastructure, and to some extent also the social and civil and political infrastructure. I'm not going to get into rights and wrongs of whether they should or shouldn't, whether Hamas is right or wrong. All I'm saying here is that a primary interest that shapes real politics on the ground in the West Bank is not about statehood and institution building, governance and transparency, accountability and democracy, any of these things. It's about counterterrorism, and specifically about defeating the challenge that Hamas may pose in the West Bank. This may be an entirely valid and legitimate concern. 
But I'm trying to emphasize that the fact that so much is invested in worrying about Hamas and the West Bank tells you inadvertently that the political and security structure of the Palestinian Authority and of Fatah and of the security agencies themselves in the West Bank, that this structure is fragile. You hear it from Israeli security officers and other experts repeatedly that if it weren't for the Israeli overriding security operation in the West Bank, then Hamas would have taken over the West Bank by now already. I heard this from Fatah security officers. Whether they're right or wrong, whether they're exaggerating or not, I'm not too concerned. I'm trying to say there's a fundamental problem of political legitimacy in the West Bank. Fatah has not perceived to have, de have delivered independence for which it signed peace with Israel. Fayyad is seen to deliver good things, law and order, some economic growth. But it's also seen that he's doing so in ways that assist and enable the Israelis to deepen and maintain and perpetuate their occupation. The proof being that the settlements have continued almost non-stop. The freeze did minimal, uh, had minimal impact on the settlement construction process over the last year. And as we know, it's about to disappear. The freeze, that is. So there are fundamental problems in the West Bank that have not been resolved and won't be resolved unless there is meaningful statehood and sovereignty for the Palestinians, at least looking at Palestinian politics. And the striking thing here is that what I'm describing, this fragility, this, pro this sort of immediate pressing problem of legitimacy and political process, only applies to the West Bank. In Gaza, the contest is already over. There is no contest over who governs Gaza, who controls Gaza inside its borders. It's Hamas and its government, the government of Prime Minister Ismail Hani. There is no contest in Gaza. There is no real challenger in Gaza. Fatah itself has been reduced to secondary status in Gaza. So let's look at Gaza for a bit. I've argued more than once over the last year. I visited in January uh, a pretty brief visit, but one that I was, was an eye-opening visit for me. I, I know Gaza reasonably well. I've been there a few times in the past. And I've done a lot of research since then, which is coming out in uh, the form of a couple of papers, um, probably in January, I hope, on comparing West Bank Gaza and on Hamas policing in Gaza. And a point I've made more than once is that in many respects, what Hamas and the Haniyeh government have done in Gaza looks much more like a state than anything in the West Bank. The Haniyeh government in Gaza and Hamas together, first of all, they work together, not against each other, as Fatah and Fayyad do in the West Bank. The result of which is that within the borders of Gaza, the government has uncontested control, not just from other Palestinian factions, which is crucial, but also from the Israelis themselves. The Israelis are outside the borders. They can bomb and shell and do all sorts of things, but they are not present inside Gaza which means that a government official, a policeman, a postman, all these people can go the full length of Gaza, which is not very long, 30 miles or so, and the full width, which is even tinier. But whatever it is, this tiny pocket of land, maximum 360 kilometers square, is all 
one bit of territory and the government can ensure that its policies and measures and edicts are applied throughout. Nicely, nastily, that's not the point. The point is they have a form of control that we associate with sovereign states that is totally non-existent in the West Bank where Palestinian autonomy areas intermesh with settlements and Israeli military bases and roads that are for Israeli settler and military use only and so on. It's a complete Swiss cheese. And not only that, but control over things such as the land registry, land use outside autonomous areas in the West Bank, the population registry by which is determined who is a legal resident, who may return into the West Bank because they've married let's say a Palestinian marries someone in Jordan or Kuwait or the UK, whether their spouse is allowed entry and is given residence, let alone nationality, is entirely in the hands of those who actually have the veto power over the population registry, which is the Israelis. Access to market within the West Bank, let alone to the outside world, is in the hands of the Israelis. Access to the electromagnetic sphere, i.e. the airwaves, for use by mo mobile telephone companies radio, TV stations, etc., is in the hands exclusively the veto power of the Israelis. In some of these respects, at least, Gaza has more autonomy, although equally not all, um, which is important and I'm going to come back to towards the end. So, what we have in Gaza is Hamas and the Haniyeh government who don't have access to the outside world, free, unfettered access, quite clearly not. They're under siege, they've been blockaded by Israel, but had it not been, of course, also by Egypt, then the siege wouldn't be very meaningful. So the outside world, the US, the EU in effect, by uh, the EU by um, refusing to operate with Hamas to secure the border with Egypt, which was the previous arrangement existing, the commitment of some NATO countries to naval patrolling off the coast to prevent supply to Gaza of arms. Um, in effect, we have a multi-actor collusion in keeping Gaza under siege. We can get into this and, and discuss this further, but whatever else, although Gaza lacks the key elements of sovereign control over its borders, access to the outside world, and even over its own security, it is clear that the Haniyeh government and Hamas are settling in for the long haul. They are confident, and I think they have a lot of reason to be confident, they are confident that they can plan for the next 10 to 20 years. This is their perspective. They will be there for 10 or 20 years. This is what they say when they talk about themselves. And <clears throat> whether it's because they believe in Islam whether it's because they're pursuing survival, they are using this long haul in order to deepen their notion of social order, their notion of what society should be like. It's increasingly Islamized um, in all sorts of ways I can discuss with you later. Whatever the, 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 the motivation for the particular forms of social order they promote, it is clear that they're digging in and entrenching and consolidating by trying to regularize what is fundamentally a black market economy based on smuggling and tunnels from Egypt. They've been trying to turn this into a normal economy. The moment the siege is lifted or eased, they will definitely benefit from that and develop that as anyone else would in their shoes. Um, 
they've managed to survive for the last four years under a very severe siege. Partly because the Fayyad government continues to pay something like one and a half billion dollars worth of salaries to its former employees in, in Gaza, because the United Nations Agency for Refugees provides for something like 75% of the population of Gaza, that is, uh, that is refugees. Um, because a lot of people get other forms of aid from other NGOs and international NGOs. There are all sorts of factors that have enabled the Hamas government to manage. But the bottom line is, they have been adept at utilizing their opportunities and resources in order to deepen and consolidate their uncontested political and security control. They will be there in another 10 or 15 or 20 years if nothing better happens in the West Bank. And here's where I want to draw the conclusions. Where does this leave the peace process? Where does it leave the two-state solution? Well, clearly there's an element of unknown at the moment. The US administration has extended a major set of incentives to Israel to extend its settlement freeze for another 90 days. Personally, I think it's atrocious and appalling for all sorts of reasons. And I think that President Obama uh, chose entirely the wrong battle to fight in early 2009 when he, not when he focused on settlements, because I think he was entirely right in identifying settlements as a central issue to confront Israel on. But when he sought specifically a settlement freeze, which is another matter, and I can discuss it later. So we don't know exactly what will happen at the end of the 90 days. Some people wonder if the United States administration is putting together a plan, a package, which it will put to the Israelis and Palestinians and maybe put very forcefully to the two sides saying, <coughs> Here is the package. We've drawn up some provisional borders for a Palestinian state, and you're going to have to go for this. And it's yes or no. We don't want quibbles and qualifications and reservations. Maybe this is what's being planned. I've heard nothing to convince me from anyone who knows anything in Washington that we have the slightest inkling about any of this. Um, who knows? Maybe something tremendously radical and amazing is being put together. Uh, and the amazing thing being that it's being put together without anyone knowing about it. Um, so there is an unknown. But I'm going to leave that aside because, not simply because I can't speculate too much, but also because I don't think it is going to make much difference what they produce, if anything, at the end of 90 days. First, what lies ahead then <coughs> is the due date set by Salam Fayyad, in August 2009, his two years end, his two-year state-building plan comes to the end of his declared timetable. In his op-ed yesterday, he says, I imagine it would be very difficult for anyone looking at us fairly to then, August 2009, still argue that Palestinians aren't capable of managing something that looks like a state. This is incidentally in the context that he mentions of having built uh, or successfully delivered more than 1,500 projects, including the establishment of dozens of new schools, clinics, and housing projects, and the construction of new roads throughout Palestine. Now, I think this is the clever part of his plan. He's going to turn around and say, okay, 
you've been pushing us since 2002, saying reform and institution building are the centerpiece of peace. Without this, no state. Right, I've built the institutions. The World Bank, the IMF, have given me certificates of performance. They have. I mean, if you go back and read the reports online, you'll find the World Bank in particular and others have come out and said there is nothing in the way of institution building standing in the way of a Palestinian state being declared at any point in the future. So it's official. He's got his MA, right? Um, so come August 2009, he'll turn around and say, I've delivered. Now it's your turn. Are you going to recognize the Palestinian state? Are you going to help make it meaningful? What will the United States and the EU then do or say? Well, let's take, let's take the best case scenario, right? Which is, well, two best case scenario. Number one, which is they say, we shall recognize the Palestinian state. This is what the EU started to think about last year or earlier this year when the Spanish held the presidency the Spanish and the French were working on a proposal to offer recognition of a Palestinian state regardless of borders, without borders. They wanted to offer de jure recognition, to say we now confirm there is an established legal reality in the world of a Palestinian state. That didn't go much further for whatever reasons. Let's say the EU revives this and the US comes along and they both say we now recognize the Palestinian state. Let's turn this into maximum scenario super or plus where the U.S. has actually come along and said, no, we don't just recognize a state. Here are some borders. The question isn't actually the borders. Because borders are meaningless unless you exercise something at the border. I mean, unless one of you stands at a border and stops John here from crossing, saying, let me see your passport. Sorry, no, you don't belong here. Settler, not settler. I don't care. This is mine. Or says... I now intend to send an airplane or a ship or a truck carrying export goods to my export markets and I don't expect to see you in the way. In other words, statehood has to have some concrete meaning. The Palestinian Authority will need, come August onwards, to have concrete control over levers of actual power that affect its conduct of government on a day-to-day -day basis that affect the lives of its citizens? Can it start moving a policeman from point A in the West Bank to point B in the West Bank without prior coordination with the Israeli army and prior permission in which the police car may or may not be allowed to proceed and policemen may or may not be allowed to proceed in uniform with or without their guns in order to get to a village to maybe apprehend someone and take them to prison? They can't do that at the moment, not without all that prior permission. Will the Palestinian state post-August be able to do that? Will it be able to get to market without going through excessive bureaucratic, slow and unhelpful, obstructive Israeli controls at borders? Will it be able to give a license to a third mobile phone company without the Israelis vetoing it or extracting extra advantage in return? Will they be able to do anything in particular, like give permanent residence or nationality to someone born to a Palestinian parent but who maybe wasn't born in Ramallah or even to someone born in Ramallah 
I mean, what will they control concretely that we take to reflect the sovereignty of the United Kingdom's government or the French government or the American government? Will the US and the EU ensure that the Fayyad government acquires a single one of these concrete levers after August? If not, we don't have a Palestinian state any more than we already have one. I mean, the PLO declared a state in 1988 and obtained recognition from more states at that time than Israel had recognition from de jure. So what? So um, what we may be left with then post-August is the following. That if Fayyad is not in fact met with concrete support of the sort I've described, then his government's legitimacy deficit is bound to deepen far more than ever before, as will that of Abbas, as will that of Fatah. Worse, perhaps, for all of us is that the card, this sort of playing card of statehood and state recognition, will have been played and proven meaningless. For most Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, let alone anywhere else, they'll have finally seen the US and the EU come along and say, yes, we recognize Palestine de jure as a state. And they turn around and realize that absolutely nothing has changed in reality. How do you expect the two-state solution from there on to have the slightest credibility among Palestinians? So my concern here is that we will actually have a regression, we'll have a blowback situation that puts everyone in a position that's even worse than the day before recognition. Because that card will prove to be a hollow gesture and nothing more. And the consequences then? Well, two. How will, if at all, the West Bank Palestinian Authority hold together from there on? Will Fatah come back into office? Will Fayyad stay in office? I mean, what happens if his two-year plan, his gamble, his high-risk strategy fails? Will he hold on in the name of the national interest? Maybe. Maybe the Americans, the Europeans, and others will prevail upon him, saying, look, 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 you know, despite everything, your country needs you, and without you, this is all going to fall apart. You have to stay there. Maybe. Maybe, on the other hand, Fatah will push and push him out and take back government, in which case you can bet that the credibility ratings of the Palestinian Authority, which are now, say, approximately 70% of the public, see that there is corruption in the authority, which was one of the big issues of the 1990s and early 2000s. If Fatah takes back power, those ratings will jump back into the mid-90s, which is where they always were, where more than 90% of the population believe that the government is corrupt. So we have now relative corruption, whether fair or unfair, it's a perception. So however we look at this, we're going to have a situation of fundamental political crisis in the governing structure of the West Bank. It may be filled up initially by Fatah, maybe. Whether Abbas stays or decides he can't take it anymore and resigns, we also don't know. There may be those, as I described earlier, in Fatah who will actually see this as an opportunity to push themselves forward. But as I also suggested, from now on, already, in fact, from the last two years or so, and certainly from summer onwards, I think, no matter what happens, pretty much, unless meaningful statehood 
is somehow promoted. We are going to see Fatah or elements of Fatah and maybe fighting other elements of Fatah, but security chiefs in the security agencies and their counterparts inside Fatah increasingly relying on the security agencies to enforce policy, to enforce <coughs> law and order, to enforce holding the system together in necessarily direct cooperation with the Israelis, with the Americans in particular. The, the trends I talked about of authoritarianism and sort of an emergent police state, I think, are inevitable from now on in the West Bank, unless the Americans and the EU come along and somehow work out something that gives concrete substance to statehood. And that's, so that's one. There's an unknown there. I mean, I can't tell you exactly what I think is going to happen, how it will pan out exactly, whether it will hold together somehow in a nasty way or a nice way or fall apart altogether. Um, but what I do know, if nothing else, is that if Fayyad's plan fails in the West Bank, then Hamas will say, we told you so. We told you all along, it won't work like this. If you're going to negotiate, you have to have resistance in negotiation. And whether they're actually resisting today or not is another matter. The point is, they become the only political party in Palestine that has an agenda, that has a strategy, that has a governing, functioning reality on a bit of territory that is semi-sovereign or quasi-sovereign. And they can then sit in for the long haul, whether they get recognition from the USA or EU, which they'd like. But as long as there's enough money coming into the territory, and as long as they have some sort of access to the outside world, and for them the outside world is not just the US and EU, although they'd love that to be part of their world, it's also Egypt and Sudan, it's Pakistan and Afghanistan. There's another world out there. And too often people in the West, too often people in the World Bank and the IMF think that they're the only people with development money, with aid, with models, with ideas about governance. Well, no. People in Gaza have other sources of ideas and models, and they've been pretty effective at doing it on, for themselves, far more so than the people who received 16 or 20 years of massive Western financial and technical assistance under previous management in the Palestinian Authority. That game in town will stay in town, in my view, and I'll stop there. Why don't we, uh, of course, open up to questions and answers. I, I don't know um, how, whether you want me to field them for you. And I'll have to take it either way. But okay. Do you want to field them together? Or? Why don't we bundle up a couple questions? And uh, here I'd like to note that we should have questions rather than uh, long uh, lectures uh, coming from the floor and bundle them up and, and get some responses. So first from the front and then over here on the right and over there on the left. Okay. <coughs> a couple of questions. I was just wondering if you could talk about the, the dynamic relationship between Fayyad and Abbas. You mentioned that mm. Abbas comes under pressure from Qatar to remove Fayyad, and I was just wondering you know, why he doesn't. Um, and then secondly, you've talked about uh, the kind of dysfunctionality between Fayyad and Qatar. Um, but you haven't touched on um, the relationship between Hamas within Qatar. Hamas and Damascus. Mm -hmm. 
thanks for all that. Um, you've touched on a lot of substantive issues. Um, we'll take them in sequence. Fayyad Abbas. Um, they worked certainly very well together for the first period, uh, first couple of years or so. You're in well from I guess 2007 till roughly the Goldstone era, so mid mid 2009. Um, and I think that one of the reasons why the Fayyad government really started off uh, quite energetically and effectively in a number of ways, among them uh, bringing about a number of improvements in technical capacity and professionalism in the security forces and the police and so on, uh, more than I would have expected, and I've worked on this sort of thing for quite a long while. Um, the critical factor there was partly that Fayyad paid real attention. I mean, he acted like a prime minister. He devoted time and effort to fixing problems, to fixing the police, to finding police vehicles, to getting the training, to bringing the EUS and the EU and Arab states together on certain things to fund certain things. He really um, delivered uh, weekly management uh, meetings with security commanders. He did all sorts of things to make this happen. And his areas were mainly public finances and, and, and the police. Um, but critical to that was a good working relationship with Abbas, which provided the political cover. Abbas, in effect, shielded him from Fatah. At a time, initially, when Fatah was in total disarray, totally demoralized after the loss of Gaza, totally in shock and in denial, which it's been in since it lost the elections four years ago. Um, so that working relationship was fundamental to the successes made in the first year or two. And I might add to that that um, they found a minister of interior in the first two years in Abdul Razak al-Yahya, who um, also worked well with them, although the really powerful figures were Fayyad because he held the money and uh, Abbas because he held Fatah. Um, and the more recent Minister of Interior who's very much a Fatah member, but also who's reform-minded, is a good man, and um, has generally worked with the Prime Minister. So these sorts of things have been important. But at the end of the day, there have been strains. We've heard a lot about it. How much is true, I don't know, and I don't think it's entirely relevant because they don't always have to totally like and agree with each other and everything. Um, bottom line is that Abbas understands that having Salam Fayyad is important. Uh, the international community trusts him. Um, he has been pivotal in ensuring massive supply of international financial assistance, including direct budgetary assistance to the Palestinian Authority, without which it wouldn't survive at least 40% of its annual budget, which is expanded, is directly from international assistance. This is a level of aid dependency that no one can really survive on. And the striking thing and the worrying thing, of course, is that both Gaza and the West Bank are wholly dependent on massive injections of international assistance of one form or another. Whether it comes from Iran, it comes from the US, it comes from zakat committees and mosques in Brixton or from you know, private donors in Saudi Arabia, it all is critical to the two areas and the two governments. Let's not you know, make any mistakes about this. So Abbas understands that Fayyad is important. However, equally, if it came to a showdown, as it were, for whatever reason, um, it's a matter of Abbas or Fayyad, then Fayyad is the weak one. Because bottom line is, as far as the Americans are concerned, in particular, the EU more generally and others, the important thing is to have someone they can deal with in Palestine and someone willing to deal with them on the issues that they regard to be the priority issues. 
security is number one, number two is security, number three is security. And then we'll you know, maybe talk about other stuff, if it helps security. So um, there, Abbas and Fatah and the Fatah membership in the security forces, which is still overwhelming, are the critical factors. And bottom line is UA Fayyad and UA Abbas and Fatah and the security services. And if you, you know, unlock the funding issue, then it goes like that. So um, that's sort of a way of putting it. The dynamics of Hamas, um, gosh, I've been trying to write about this in, in this paper, one of the papers I've just, which is coming out in a, about six weeks. Um, I'm not a Hamas expert. There are others who are far more expert on this. But my sense, my reading is that, first of all, Hamas is like any political movement, and it's a, it is a real political movement in the sense that it's got a structure, it's got process, it has internal democracy up to a point. There are constant consultations with the grassroots that go back up. There are elections to their local shura councils. There are a number of things that Fatah has failed to do, which isn't to say it's a democratic organization necessarily, nor that it isn't also heading in, its, in, in, in Gaza in its own terms in a more authoritarian direction. I see evidence that Hamas's dynamics are becoming, uh, well, Hamas was, for most of its history, has been uh, a pragmatic organization in the sense that it doesn't really work simply from ideology. It works from very careful pragmatic calculations of political opportunities in front of it. It debated internally, massively, in the early 90s, whether or not to join the Palestinian Authority, for instance. This was a real debate internally. And it worked from cell at local level all the way up to the branch level, all the way up to the central regional level, and then up to the top leadership and down. Position papers were produced by select committees, sometimes of academics, which were circulated for discussion. I mean, it's a pretty impressive process. And um, they debated whether or not to enter the elections and compete in 1996. And their decision to compete in municipal elections in 2004 and 2005, and ultimately the big one, which was to compete in the general elections of 2006, which meant joining the Palestinian Authority system, which they'd refused to do because it was based on the Oslo Accords with Israel. All these followed immense debate. This sort of consensual trend in Hamas and pragmatic trend appears to be under strain and increasingly it's a younger generation of harder people, graduates of prisons in Israel, graduates of assassin, you know, survivors of assassination and bombing of wars, um, many of them in the security sector, the Azuddin Qassam battalions and others. These increasingly seem to be the people taking the lead in Gaza on social affairs, on Islamization, etc. And I'll say a little bit more about that. And these people seem to be moving into action first, whether or not there's been a prior discussion and consensus. And that's a significant shift. Hamas appears to be changing in fundamental ways as an organization. And that, I guess, is natural because Hamas has been in power for four years. And power changes people. I don't just mean in sort of in a rather silly sense of you know, power corrupts. I mean that they had to deal with the questions of government, of daily life, of public law and order, of delivery of services, of all sorts of issues. And to deal with the question of, so are we a resistance movement? Are we still fighting Israel? And since we're in power, 
Are we, do we want an Islamic state? Why do we still have a secular legal system? Should we bring in Sharia? I mean, these become very real questions. And Hamas has had to grapple with this. And I think, although it claims to have successfully married resistance and principle, um, my feeling is that, in fact, the strains are proving very important. doesn't mean it's going to fall apart or break apart by any means. These may be nuances more than fissures, more than real divisions. But partly what I'm saying is that it's not a matter anymore, really, of inside versus the outside leadership in Damascus. Nor is it simply moderates versus hardliners on fighting Israel. Nor is it simply those who want Salafi Islam, i.e. pure Islam, versus moderate Islamists. It's all and all of those, but not in ways where you can say this group are anti, you know, sort of they want war with Israel, they want pure Islam, and they want this and that. And on this side are the pragmatists and moderates who we can talk to. It's not as simple as that. Some of the older generation who feel that Hamas's Islamic nature as a Muslim Brotherhood branch have been compromised by government are also hostile to Israel, but some of the leading sort of Salafi ideologues are those who want unending war with Israel. So you can't, in any of these cases, take a clear cut as inside versus outside, young versus old. I think, personally, this might be the sort of bias of my own research interests. You know, I, I know what I am interested in looking at, which is the military, security, coercion, violence, and I find answers that relate to this. And maybe what's happening is that like in the West Bank, it's increasingly people in the security services, in the security sector, in the Ministry of Interior, who are the critical players, along with the Qassam battalions. These are the people with the guns. These are the people who exercise, not necessarily through direct coercion. One of the things that struck me most about Gaza was that I was there for four days and went the whole length, part of the width, and drove through the main towns I was very busy with other stuff, but I had a you know, sort of taxi driver impression, you know, the usual taxi driver story, except I didn't have a taxi driver. And um, in four days, I saw very few armed men, far, far, far fewer than I used to see when Fatah was in command. It was quiet. It was a lot cleaner than I'd ever seen it. Uh, they certainly sweep up the streets, which get very dusty and sandy, as you might imagine, in Gaza, for those of you who think about it. Um, Policemen at traffic intersections without guns, even sidearms. I mean, what Middle Eastern country can you go to where the police are unarmed? In the U.S. You know, I mean, it's only here, right? So this was Gaza. I then, the next day, went to Ramallah in the West Bank, the seat of the Fayyad government, and I took a taxi. This time I did take a taxi, but I didn't talk to the driver from the Kalandia checkpoint, which is between Jerusalem and Ramallah. And I drove through Ramallah Biri to the other side on the Birzeit road, for those of you like Penny over there who knows Birzeit and Ramallah. 20 minute ride, in other words, by taxi. In 20 minutes, I saw many more guns and men in uniform, balclava, you know, things face, covering half their faces, very you know, scary, uh, helmets, Kevlar, the works. You know, and they all now know how to stand with their guns this way instead of the old style that slung around the hip, etc. This was an intimidating, very visible military presence. 20 minutes in one single city, I saw more than I saw in the entirety of Gaza in four days. 
Now, does that say that this is because Hamas have the total will and support of the people, because they're such nice guys? No, there's a lot more that goes into this. But it's far more than the mere knowledge among people in Gaza that if they do anything wrong, they are going to get beaten up or tortured or thrown in prison or shot or whatever. That sometimes happens, but it's usually directed very specifically against people who are seen as direct challengers to Hamas rule. And it's entirely debatable whether things are any nicer in the West Bank. Human Rights Watch has just come out with yet another report saying that after an improvement in late 2009, levels of torture and beatings in Palestinian Authority prisons and detention facilities in the West Bank have climbed back to their previous levels, which were never very good. So, um, this is Hamas Dynamics. It's a bit about Gaza life. A, a word more on Gaza and Islamization. Gaza, as you may or may not know, is a very conservative place to begin with uh, in terms of religious observance, in terms of social conservatism. And incidentally, the fact that people might be religiously observant doesn't tell us much, if anything at all, about their political leanings. In fact, my, uh, my, my very good friend and colleague, Khalil Shikaki, who runs one of the most important polling uh, centers, survey centers in Palestine, um, argues very specifically that religiously observant Palestinians tend to vote far less for Hamas than they might for others. It's got nothing to do with whether they believe in God or the Quran or anything else. These aren't the correlations that count. Hamas's core constituency is not the religiously observant. It's people who have a political agenda and also use Islam. So Islamization in Gaza has been more about Hamas and the Gaza government, Hani government, demonstrating that they haven't gone soft in power, that they haven't given up on their principles in the face of the real new challenge, not Fatah, but Salafi jihadists and Takfiri type Islamists in Gaza who've emerged increasingly since 2004 with the breakdown of the PA originally. Um, and these are the people who Hamas feels are the real threat because they use Hamas's own discourse of Islam and of pure Islam in order to compete with Hamas and to show that Hamas is, is fake. They took part in elections in 2006, which is a bid'ah. Democracy is a bid'ah. It's a you know, Western invention that equates man with God because it, it places sovereign power and will in the, in the vote of people, whereas it should only reside in God. That law is not divine law, sharia, it's man-made law. All these things are held against Hamas, among many others. So Hamas responds by Islamizing and pushing Islamization very actively, partly because it's competing with this sort of challenge. It's not worried about the secularists. They're totally dispersed and, and cowed. Um, and ultimately, because to go back to the issue of dynamics within Hamas, Hamas has its internal dynamic. And part of what's going on is that Hamas is not so much afraid of the jihadists outside its organization. It's worried about a significant number of people within Hamas itself and in the Qassam battalions who are also who, who believe in the same jihadist or takfiri ideology. And this is a trend that has grown since 2006, first in protest at the participation in the elections because of the reasons I explained, and because of the ceasefire with Israel, and for all these things, and because Sharia hasn't been enforced as the central and single code of law in Gaza. Far from it, in fact, ironically. I mean, I can tell you more. 
So um, it's, it's, it's part of the internal struggle within Hamas, and part of the reason it pushes Islamization is because it's worried about its own rank. I'll, I'll just say a quick word, because uh, I, I don't want to turn this into a second lecture. Um, Fatah Hamas reconciliation. First of all, I don't see it. I don't think it's going to happen, full stop. Um, a variety of reasons. One is Fatah has lost, learned none of the lessons of its electoral defeat, and it still wants to get back into power sort of from above, thanks to American support, international funding, coercion of Gaza, coercion of Hamas. Hamas, on the other side, it's um, in the words of, um, I think, I don't know if it was Hanil Masri, who's a commentator on Palestinian politics, or Khaimar um, Abu Sada, who's a professor at the Al Azhar University in Gaza, just a week or two ago, had very nice articles. One of them, anyway, says very bluntly that for Gaza, for, for Hamas, Gaza is a bird in the hand as opposed to two in the bush in the West Bank. They have Gaza. They've got a base, they've got a territory, they've got a quasi-state. Why get into complex power-sharing arrangements with Fatah in the West Bank? When, after all, the critical issue in the West Bank is that it actually isn't in Fatah's hands to offer Hamas anything in the West Bank. Can you imagine what Israel would do if Fatah came along and said, you know, we, we've patched, um, patched up with Hamas, we've kissed and made up. We're going to offer them a national unity government and allow them to reopen for business in the West Bank. We'll make sure they don't have terrorist cells, but, you know, they can run for office, they can run for mayor, they can, you know, they can op reopen their NGOs, their charities, or so on. You think Israel is going to let that happen? No. So in a sense, I mean, why would Hamas want to get into a reconciliation arrangement that basically might give Gaza to Fatah, but can never give the West Bank to Hamas? Again, I'm not taking sides in terms of who I like or dislike here. You know, I, don't, I don't agree with Hamas in its ideology, its military behavior, anything. That's not the point. From their perspective, power sharing is meaningless. Let's put it differently. From the perspective of technocrats, of good governance, power sharing and national unity government means bye-bye Salam Fayyad, bye-bye institution building, bye-bye public financial management and scrutiny, etc. And back to Fatah gets these ministries and Hamas gets those ministries and they dish it all out. Why is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing if it delivers political solutions, but that means that the US and Israel in particular, never mind the EU, have to be willing to deal with a Palestinian reality that involves Hamas as an, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's there. And no amount of pretending it's not there, it's the elephant in the room and it's more than an elephant in the room. So what I'm saying in a way is that no reconciliation, no reintegration of West Bank and Gaza. I mean, it's like they're as close together today in real meaningful sense of the word as East Pakistan and West Pakistan were until 1971. Unless so, because at least the West Pakistani army could send tens of thousands of troops there and kill people, and you know, until 1971. They could actually fly there and go in and out. Gaza and the West Bank don't even have that level of relationship. So, Reintegration is not on the cards. And elections are an interesting one because, in my view, about the only thing that could possibly break the deadlock is to have real elections. And by real elections, I mean where winner takes all. I mean, where the elections are conducted according to an electoral law agreed by both sides, 
And if Hamas wins, then it wins, and everyone has to respect that. And that means the USA and Israel first, and then Fatah. And if Fatah wins, then Hamas has to have assurances, just as Fatah must as well, that whoever loses the election, whether they remain a strong opposition or not, doesn't face the guillotine. That losing at the polls, at the ballot box, doesn't mean death, doesn't mean prison. Can, you know, if elections can be set up that provide these basic assurances, which are, after all, what operate here, I mean, we know that if power is handed over to the Conservative and uh, um, Lib Dem party, Labour don't all have to go into exile in Tuscany, you know, anywhere, right? <laughs> so, but unless that can be provided in Palestine, and that means Israeli and US guarantees, then it's not going to happen. A new round, if you like. Oh, have I not? Sorry. Viability. Sorry, viability. Okay. Sorry, I, 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 was, I knew I was taking too long and I wanted to say <clears throat> I mean, on the one hand, West Bank is totally unviable, as currently structured in all these sort of pockets of autonomy, etc. On the other hand, strictly speaking, there is no sort of innate given thing that determines when a territory becomes viable or not viable. I mean, is it a certain amount of water, natural resources, oil? Is it a certain surface area? Is it contiguity? I mean, why can't a country operate, hypothetically, as Barack's original first generous offer uh, offered in December 1999, and I'm saying this from first-hand experience, um, a system in which various Palestinian pockets in the West Bank would be connected by underpasses and flyovers. Now, how many of us venture more than, what is it, five miles beyond our, or maybe in London, 10 miles, 15 miles, but I mean within our metro underground network, how far do any of us venture in a given year beyond our own homes, unless we're going on holiday? Most of us live within a very small radius. I mean, what I'm trying to say is, if now and then you want to get to the next city like Birmingham or Sussex, and you do it by a flyover and underpass, so what's the difference between getting on the M60 or the M11? Do you visit much of the country in between? Do you sort of stop and spend a week in St. Albans or Royston? <laughs> you don't. You get on that one little route that says, why does this room, and you go to your destination. Why can't that be viable? I mean, from a functional, economic point of view, what makes Singapore viable? or Monaco. None of them are viable in any sense except for the historical reasons that brought them about. So I'm not saying that this is a good recipe. I'm just saying that viability is a very tricky thing. And it's, it worries me also because it would be very easy for the US or the EU or others to come along and say, look, uh, yes, it is viable. I mean, what do you need? Um, job generation? Great. Let's create some qualified industrial zones. You know, this is, we do this everywhere, don't we? We've already got two or three operating in the West Bank. There were one or two operating in Gaza. Just have some more, you know, cheap labor in qualified zones, uh, tax-free, no trade unions, managed by private security companies. This is familiar. It's also been happening in Palestine. Um, you've got jobs. What's the big deal? So let's be very careful about viability because the argument can be taken a number of different ways. There's nothing necessary that makes this map or that border intrinsically better or worse. Um, it's partly to do with sense of identity, of justice, that'll be part of it. There will be maybe other more functional things, like if 
Jerusalem is surrounded on the east side by the Mali Adumim settlement block and then extended into all remaining empty zones between the Mali Adumim settlement block and East Jerusalem, then the natural urban growth of East Jerusalem as a city in the sense of urban development and urban planners, any, anyone among you will know, cities develop in organic ways, all sorts of ways, they adapt. But equally, the natural space for East Jerusalem as a Palestinian city would have naturally been to the south to Bethlehem, to the north to Ramallah, to the industrial zone of Betunia, and the trade routes east through Jordan for trunk traffic and, and, and trade. And if that, all that has been taken over by this massive Israeli urban sprawl with its own industrial zone and its own access to airports and the ports and, and its own bridge to Jordan, then you know, you're fundamentally, uh, you know, you, there are problems. Um, but I, I think that those are not clear issues. If you want to look at the politics, I suggest you read Moshe Ahrens's recent uh, proposal a month or two ago. Moshe Ahrens, right-wing, Likudnik, Hawk, you know, uh, an ideologue. And, and probably as a person, someone with real scruples and principles, unlike most Likudniks, um, or the ones who've been prime minister anyway. Um, Ahrens is a right-wing nationalist, a Zionist. Um, he wants, you know, Eretz Israel, Bishashlema, the sort of entire land of Israel. However, he wrote just about two months ago in Haaretz, I think, of all places, um, liberal left. Um, you know, what is the big deal with a one-state solution? So let's allow the Palestinians of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, not Gaza, but with that one exception, yeah, let's make them all Israeli citizens and have one state from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. So what I'm sort of saying in a way around, around about there, way there is just that the, um, the political solutions and the political um, ideas are not the same thing as discussing the technical sides of sort of viability. And I think the fact that someone like Aaron's will come along and say something like this is quite astonishing. Some answers, right? <laughs> um, 
Maybe I should reverse the order this time. Um, well, I mean, if, if uh, well, at the end of the settlement freeze, um, the political, the difficulty for Abbas to work between his, I mean, basically he has no strategy except negotiation, which is something that Hamas criticizes him for and sort of scores points with. Um, the thing is, how far can he use the threat of not going to the talks in order to get the Israelis to do something or to get the Americans to make the Israelis to do something, which is what he's tried time and time and time and time again. And we've seen the real limits to that. And I think we all also need to start thinking about the limits of American power. I don't just mean in Israel, but in the world anyway. Uh, this is a new world. Things are changing. Whether it's the Obama administration or just the U.S. in general, you know, the, the WikiLeaks are interesting. Some analysis is, is, is sort of shows just how, uh, who was it, Amos Harel, I think, in Haaretz day or two ago's assessment was, if these show anything, the private talks of American envoys with various Middle Eastern leaders, they show that these leaders, you know, hear speeches from Obama, whoever it is, in Istanbul or Cairo and elsewhere, and um, just sort of ignore them and carry on pressing whatever they're concerned about. Um, and this tells you something that, the, um, to the extent that either this is a problem that the US doesn't actually have a, a plan, and therefore isn't consistent in pursuing the plan and bringing the right instruments to bear, or that it is perceived in addition to um, actually lacking anymore the sort of superpower status or influence or whatever that can deliver, and most of the local players use the US to try and bash whoever they want to bash, it might be Iran today. So um, while allowing for the fact that the US might not be able to do everything, um, it's clear that Abbas is stuck needing the Americans to do everything and do the he heavy lifting for him, and they aren't delivering. He's been let down very, very, very badly several times so far and ends up time and again as the emperor without clothes because he then has to go to the talks at the end of the day uh, because if he doesn't, he can't deliver anything. But if he goes, then everyone around him, almost everyone except his closest entourage, of course, who have the same interest, um, end up telling him that um, you, you know, you've, you've given up all our possible leverage. So we go back to what I was describing earlier, which is from August onwards, I anticipate the crisis will deepen and um, Hamas will be able increasingly to say, I told you so. Maybe increasingly people in Fatah in the West Bank will say the same thing as well. Um, bottom line, and this ties into the um, uh, sort of issue about rockets and, and so on, that it's sort of a, a, f a fluid and dynamic balance. None of these things are fixed. Uh, I mean, rockets weren't a big issue in the 1990s because there was a political process that was on balance working more than not. Um, what has failed to happen since 2006 or 7 is to generate a new political dynamic that on balance works more than it doesn't. So under these conditions, there is no way I think anyone really can expect Israel to pull out of the West Bank and to find a competent, capable force in the West Bank on the other side that is actually able to assure no rocket fire. Hamas has done that in Gaza quite effectively, finally. Um, they have not fired rockets for a very long time. They've managed to persuade quite a few other groups, including Islamic Jihad, not to. So whether the same thing would happen in the West Bank or not, 
you and I don't know. And, uh, you know, Israel certainly is going to have to factor that in and isn't going to give up territory, and more important than territory, direct control. The fact that they can go into cities every single day, every single night, and take out people, even in cities that are now policed by the Palestinian police. So they won't give that up. And maybe, arguably, they, you know, you can understand that. But the point is, this is not a sort of terrorism or dealing with that sort of threat is not a technical issue. If there is a viable political pro process, then you get different political dynamics. And the people who stop the rockets have legitimacy. Hamas can do this in Gaza partly because they do other things, like put hijab on women. They have the legitimacy. And they have the legitimacy of having you know, killed a lot of Israelis. I mean, all sorts of sources of legitimacy. In the West Bank, Fatah can't bring this into play anymore. How long can they still draw something from their struggle, their history, of launching, of firing the first bullet? They're in a peace process, and they're committed to peace with Israel and non-violence. So they can't use that car. Bottom line is, whether it's Hamas versus Fatah, whether it's West Bank versus Gaza, whether it's rockets or no rockets, it's about which political dynamic becomes the stronger one in the coming year or so. If it looks like something meaningful is emerging on the West Bank, Hamas will become more and more under pressure even in Gaza. Simply because it becomes more, ev more evident that a meaningful exit from the situation is actually coming about in West Bank through a different strategy. And their alternative is not the better one. And opinion polls suggest this because most opinions who are polled, regardless of their sympathies, tend to feel that if Hamas were to win the next election, the siege of Gaza will continue. If Fatah wins the next election, the, the siege of Gaza may be lifted. There's a better chance. And it's nothing to do with the competence or honesty of Fatah. It's just to do with their understanding that you know, the US will work with Fatah and it will work with Hamas. Therefore, the siege is dependent on this sort of thing. There are these factors. So if things improve in the West Bank, things will change. Hamas will be under pressure. But if things don't, if we don't have a meaningful process in the West Bank, then it'll be the West Bank that's under pressure. And that will only be maintained through increasingly police-style methods. Finally, on Hamas and this two-state solution um, and Israeli security versus control, I want to touch on both quick, quickly. Um, yes, I mean, we've got more than one discourse from Hamas. The one about a two-state solution by people like Khaled Mishal and others is not new. They've been signaling this since at least the early 1990s, if not almost immediately when they came into being in the late 1980s. Sheikh Ahmad Yassin, who was killed by the Israelis, um, in fact said stuff that was at least as clear as what Mishal is saying, if not clearer, back in the 90s. So, and this is, I think, very real. It's not unreal because Hamas, bottom line, is a political animal. It's in this for political reasons. It's not in this because it has some mythical, mystical belief in the afterlife. It's there to achieve results in this world. So there is a very real pragmatic, you might want to call it moderate, um, element within Hamas that understands that they have to come to terms with this reality. Now they will cloak it in the right discourse 
they'll say, we still don't recognize Israel's right to exist, but we recognize its reality and deal with it, and we'll have a truce for 10, 20, 50, 100 years. But, I mean, you know, who can, you know, how do we know that the U.S. truce with the U.K. will last that long? I mean, you know, they've got a truce, you could say. I mean, we're talking about 100 years from now, who knows? The thing is that, to a very large extent, Hamas has been going through the same trajectory that the PLO did and Fatah did it themselves from the 1970s onwards. They started out seeking to destroy Israel, to liberate the entirety of historic man-made Palestine, i.e. destroy Israel, through armed struggle and nothing else. And in the course of the 1970s, a new discourse emerged of constructing a combatant revolutionary authority on whatever territory the occupation recedes from, i.e. the West Bank Gaza, i.e. ultimately negotiations, and then that all became explicit when 1988 and onwards. It took them over 20 years. Hamas is playing the same game. It, bottom line is, why should they stick their necks out and say, look, bottom line is, yes, we'll recognize Israel, yes, two-state solution, yes, we understand not all the refugees are going home, yes, 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 when no one is actually offering not them. No one's even offering Abbas, who's already said all these things, including the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state, you know, as a, as a fundamental sort of historical principle. He's said all these things, and he's not getting a state. Why should Hamas stick out its neck and lose its constituency and its legitimacy when there isn't actually a deal on the table? I mean, there is a very real pragmatic calculation there. Now, I'm not saying I agree with their, the way they think, and I think this is wrong, and I think playing this game of we won't recognize Israel is the same stupid game that the PLO played for far too long. It's a bad card, it's a stupid card, and the rocket fire and the suicide bombings are at least as bad. But if within Hamas, to say more pragmatic line is to gain ground and not the more radical line, then it's the same thing as between Fatah and Hamas. If there seems to be a political opportunity for Hamas to be engaged and to find that it is treated as an interlocutor by the US and the EU and others, then those who persuaded the radical element to take part or to allow them to take part in the 2006 elections will be stronger. What has happened since 2006 because of the concerted onslaught on the Hamas government that came to power through a democratic election, the result of this, the breakdown of constitutional order, the civil war, largely through the intervention of the US through covert means and in collusion with various elements of Fatah and security forces, um, the consequence has been, among other consequences, that those in Hamas who argued for that entire, if you like, moderation have been shown to be completely wrong and fools because they thought they would get somewhere by being elected to office. They thought this was meaningful. And so those who say this is all useless and a fake and democratic elections are meaningless, etc., etc., it's all double standards. Human rights, are, look at our rights, they don't care about them. All these discourses that we hear and use out here the radicals in Hamas can point to these sort of moderates and say, so where's your 2006 election then? Look at us, where are we under siege for four years? So it's the same type of dynamic. 
there's something real on the table, you get a different shift. There's nothing real on the table, you're going to get entrenching and deepening and consolidation for the long haul. And that's where, I, again, I think they've got the coherence and the endurance. And despite these differences, they're not going to break up, and we're not going to split them apart. Many thanks for the coherence and endurance.